Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday morning and I have a little time. I'm going to do another one from the Gnosim I'm looking through, uh, which caught my eye. And here's a very interesting one, lot number 23. And uh, (laughs) I don't even think if they know how uh, interesting this is, um, because what they're doing is they're offering a certain chumash, as they call it in the catalog, um, on page 30. Uh, remember, the Gnosim uh, uh, auction is next week, a week from tomorrow. Anyway, it's called the Court of Prague's Oath Chumash. Uh, this goes back to Carol Fisher. There's a, there's a picture, no, not of him, but of the Chubmiyavo. Uh here we're going back to a very interesting period in Jewish history, and it's a quite an a, a, quite an interesting artifact, at least to me. Um, what are we talking about? It's even cheap. It's four or five k. Anyhow, um, that's chump change for some people. Anyhow, um, first of all, Jews used to live, of course, in Central Europe. Second of all, we're talking about the Austrian Empire, what you sometimes call Austria-Hungary, but at that time it was the Austrian Empire. And in the 1700s, early 1800s, the biggest community, there were three big communities in the Austrian Empire, A, B, C. One was Bohemia, Moravia, what we call today the Czech Republic. The second is Hungary. The third is Galicia. That's where you had large numbers of Jews. Um, Galicia had the most by far, but Bohemia had a nice stickle. And Prague, which is the capital of Bohemia, which used to be a unit within the Austrian Empire, had the largest Jewish community in Europe at that time, which was 11,000 Jews. Today it's a joke, but I'm talking about at that time. That was considered humongous. You go to Prague today, like he just told me yesterday, he's going to Bornstein, so you, you know, they had, they had 11 shoals. Uh, most towns didn't have that. So, um, and this is the Kufa of the Note of Yehuda, for example, and his successors. Now, um, in that, the, the, the Austrian Empire and some of the other European states were what I always call bureaucratic absolutist states, which means they were run by the king or the emperor as a dictator, but with the help, necessarily, of a bureaucracy. And that means the bureaucrats are the ones who really run the show most of the time, unless the emperor or the king actually takes the trouble to patch the Ryan in a very specific detail, which didn't happen often. But it did happen, and the key word I want to bring out is micromanaging. This was the era of, of the European police state. It has nothing to do with Hitler whatsoever. It's nothing to do with Hitler. I mean, the police state means that the government regulates it and feels that it's proper to regulate every single area of activity. And that's when the story I'm going to talk about today takes place, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And the Austrian Empire, including Bohemia and Prague, was absolutely a, a, a micromanaging bureaucratic state. And that's what they were. The thing is that it's, like I said before, these kind of empires were anti-Semitic, but not in the way that would be suggested if I used the term today, because today you think of Hitler or something like this, and this was very different. Instead, it was something like I was speaking about Venice the other day, which is that these are countries that did not like Jews. The Jews were there. They weren't throwing them out. So there was 150,000 different rules and regulations you know, uh, regulating every single area of Jewish life, including marriage, um, marriage restrictions, things like that. And it's uh, a pain in the neck. But if you, the Jew, follow those rules and regulations, then you have freedom to do what you want. You get what I'm saying? You have freedom to do what you want. You do have religious liberty in that regard, um, provided you listen to the rules and the regulations. Which were many, many, and and uh, very uh, big tircha, you know. Now, that's the world of yesteryear, and now we have the question of uh, sense book censoring that I talked about the other day, 
when I was speaking about Italy, and especially the Giustiniani Rambam I spoke about the other day. Uh, in Austria, um, in Prague especially, which, you know, the Austrians only conquered Galicia with all those Jews in 1772. So prior to that, the biggest community in the most Chashub was in Bohemia. I don't want to get too technical with you. Bohemia actually used to include Silesia, but you don't know what I'm talking about until Frederick the Great grabbed it. So there was a large Jewish community by relatives terms. Plus, Prague has always been an Iker Mokum Torah in the world. Many, many great gedolim and that sort of thing from Prague. They always had a printing press. It was a major center of culture. There used to be hundreds of yeshiva boys from all the world going to the different yeshivas in Prague, yeshivos in Prague. It's a shame it all fell apart eventually, but that for a long time it ran stark. And uh, this is what Prague was. So if you're Jewish, you want to maintain any kind of Torah scholarship, rabbinic scholarship, you need books. Where do the books come from? So it's the Austrian Empire. They frown on importing books. On the other hand, if you, uh, on the other hand, they know that book publishing or book selling is a money maker, meaning the, the government gets taxes out of that. So it was like I said the other day with Venice. It was a machlogus between their, their heart and their mind, or maybe I should say their, their heart and their pocketbook. You know? Now, finally, you have the issue of censorship. After the, 50, after the Catholic Reformation in the 1550s, 1560s, 1570s, so the church really cracked down. And in a Catholic country, which the Austrian Empire was all Catholic, you could not publish a Jewish book unless it was censored, meaning you had to show the whole business to a censor, uh, a Catholic priest most of the time. And, um, and they had to go through line by line with a fine-tooth comb. And I'm talking about Hebrew books, Sfarim, Pilpel, Halacha, Musser, you name it. And uh, and the only and the priest had a book uh, of of objectionable expressions you can't allow in, called Index Expurgatum, and Sefer Azikuk in, in Hebrew. And only after the censor agreed that this book now doesn't contain anything uh, improper. Now, by the way, what do I mean by improper? It's such a weird, it's, it's, it's almost a certain arbitrariness. Um, obviously, if there's any references to Yeshu, that goes out. Obviously, if it's any references to Notzerim, that goes out, or they switch it to Yishma'elam. This is how life was lived. Obviously, the Mechaber puts in the beginning, like the Nod of Yehuda, when we talk about Akim, we do not mean the Goyim today, Adraba, they're wonderful, they're tzaddikim, they're great, blah, blah, blah. That's for sure. Obviously, you don't want something which is our religion is the best religion in the world. Even that they objected to. And you don't want anything, but they could even go beyond that. You understand? In other words, if, they'll, if in a safer they'll write, this rabbi was the God Ador, the outstanding person in the world, the censor would say, you're making too much out of him. He's just a Jew. You get what I'm saying? They stuck their nose in a lot of areas. It wasn't exactly um, a question of pro or anti-Christian. Uh, that's how it was. Now, if you're Jewish, you simply had to suck it up. You, there was nothing you could do about it because you were in their control. In the 1500s, the 1600s, and most of the 1700s, in the Austrian Empire, such measures were handed by the state to the church, to the universities, let's put it this way, like the University of Prague. The universities for a long, long time, were Catholic institutions, meaning the professors all were galachim, uh, totally dominated by the Jesuits, were very stark and very anti-Jewish. And the Jesuits did a good job, I'm sorry to say, on converting Jews here and there and there and there. And that was their main goal. And therefore, if you were Jewish, and in a place like Prague, which was one of the main places in the world for Jews, uh and you were a rabbi or something like that, you had to dance on eggs all the time. Because all you need is one or two malshinim, and there always are malshinim. In the best yeshiva, there are malshinim. Just get over it. You understand? This guy's angry for that reason, this guy's angry for another reason, whatever the case is. You could write movies about why this guy you know, turned into a malshin, and that guy did, but they do. So you realize that you're like being you know under 24-7 surveillance, so to speak, 
And especially when it comes to publishing books and things like that, the um, the Jesuits, the Catholic priests, are uh, going to you know read what you have with a very jaundiced eye. Now, how does a guy read Hebrew? First of all, maybe he took some Hebrew classes. I'm serious, you know. Now, you'll tell me like this. Just because you take a couple of courses in Hebrew doesn't mean you really know Hebrew, especially rabbinic Hebrew, especially a safer alumnus. That is true. Tough luck. You're screwed. There's nothing about it. That guy, with all of his knowledge or lack of knowledge, uh, is the guy who has the right to say whether it can be published or, uh, you know, Chubas David Oppenheimer or Apeshitz. You know what I mean? Notice, that's the, that's the name of the game. And every once in a while, if they feel... Because the Jews naturally, under a system like that, are going to try to cheat and try to get farm, you know, uh, you know, from elsewhere or secretly or whatever, you know, it, it be, because the system is so uh, anal, so uh, somebody will tell. And every once in a while, the Jesuits would make a raid using the Austrian police and they'll round up all the books. And they say, I mean, and, and they won't give them back. I remember in the early 1700s, well, it happened once or twice. They simply did like they did in France. They rounded up all the books. Instead of burning them, they put them in a cellar where the books rotted. Uh, it was tough. And the the main guy, so what I'm trying to say is it was the Austrian Empire, but on a day-to-day basis, you had to deal with the Catholic priests, with the Jesuits. And that's just a tough one. Okay? But that's the, so when you see, you know, uh, the Elia Rabba, you know, the, the David Oppenheimer, uh, Abishuds, you know, people like that, famous the Chachmei Prague, as we call him, the Maral, although he was a little bit earlier. Uh, many, many names. You realize they lived in a tough environment. You know what I'm saying? They live in a, Robin Brody, you know, they live in a tough environment. That, that's how it goes. Okay? And there was nothing you could do about it. There was nothing you could do about it. Uh, especially, that's why whenever it came time to print a Shas, which you needed, uh, it was very, very hard to get it done in the Catholic countries. And it's very famous when David Oppenheimer was a multi-zillionaire, zillionaire, I say, and a book collector. We had this huge library. He's like, I'm not in the jet. And he was a rabbi in Prague. I'm not putting my library in this town. You know, one day some stupid galochen could get together and round up all my stuff and burn it or whatever. I could lose it. You know, he had like a Gnosim catalog full of books. It's very famous, the Oppenheimer collection. So he had... So he lived in Prague, and he was the rabbi, chief rabbi in Prague. Again, the off basin of the whole Prague, that's a big situation. His fancy library was in another Medina, away from the Austrian Empire, in a Protestant country, in Hanover, because he was afraid of the Mishigas of the censors and the Catholic priests who ran the whole operation. In other words, this is how life was lived. So when you see a savior from that time, it's really hard. Uh, when they wanted to reprint the Gemara, which they said, listen, they're printing them in other places in Germany, and they're making the money. Why don't we print it here in Prague? At least we'll make the money. The government will get the taxes. And the Catholic Church were a bunch of schmoes at that time. They said, no, only if you, uh, you know, eliminate this and cut this out. I mean, not a little bit about Yeshu, whole big pieces. And this Agatha is stupid, and this thing is stupid. You have to eliminate it all. And the Jews didn't, didn't want to do this. This is why Rionis and Apeshitz, when he was famous, one of his famous, one of his uh, controversial things uh was his involvement with the catholic church and trying to negotiate with them uh an agreement whereby he could publish a gemara you understand and they said you have to cut this out and that out and he you know handled with them and they gave in a little bit and he gave in a little bit and he caught help of giving in a little bit and he and he even has a section there where he tries to explain some of the weird agatitas uh that's a whole partial by itself i got interrupted by something Anyway, um, so it's very famous. You so um, for 50 years, actually 60 years, there was one Catholic Galach, uh, Francis, uh, Franz Hasselbauer, who was uh, the, from, from the University of Prague, and he was the censor of all the Jewish books, and he hated Jews. And what really drove him crazy is that he couldn't debate any of the rabbis because they only talk Yiddish, and they didn't understand anything he seen was a dialogue of the deaf and that and the rabbis i don't blame them at all said you know we're not good at debating and we don't want to talk about that's why you like the because they should could, could speak um german 
and he could debate them. I mean that in a, in a dialogue, respectful fashion. They liked Abishitz. But that made the enemies of Abishitz say, see, he's really a guy, and so on and so forth. Uh, and when he published the Gemara in the early 1700s, he was criticized because he left out parts in Brachos, uh, like you're giving into the Goyim, and he explained it away. That's all Parsha by itself. But I'm simply pointing out that it was very tough to be Jewish and have a Mokham Torah under such a difficult uh, publication regime. They did it. It wasn't easy. And that's the period, like I said, when you read the Nodabu to people like that, you realize, that, you know, they, they were always uh, writing and teaching and, and publishing under a gun. I mean, that that is the way it went. It's just it's just very interesting in this regard. Now, in Poland, you didn't have this, but in um, in, in 95% of the places, in 5% you had it, but 95 you didn't have it. Uh, but in uh, in Prague, you sure as heck did. Uh, this this is how life went. Now, here's the thing: over the course of the 1700s, having nothing to do with the Jews, the Austrian state started a shtickle to secularize, because they wanted wanted to attain a certain modernity, become a modern country. In a modern country, the state's supposed to have a police state, supposed to regulate everything on the basis of rationality, not simply on the basis of religious dogma. So the Empress Maria Theresa, who did not like Jews, and she was there for 40 years from 1740-1780, one of the things she's famous for in her time was that she turned the universities, for example, from religious institutions where everyone's a galach to secular institutions uh, where, of course, the, the greatest respect was paid to the Catholic religion, the greatest. But the professors, all the rest of are teaching secular. Okay, and um, that means it's very interesting that the professors are not galachim anymore most of the time, and that means that the people who are going to be teaching what they call Oriental subjects, including Hebrew, Arabic, and things like this, in places like the University of Prague and others, are going to be coming at it from a more a more sec- they are Catholic. You're not going to get a job as a professor if you're not Catholic in the Austrian Empire, but uh, they're going to approach from a more secular perspective. Okay? Uh, now, what do I mean? Why am I giving you all this? So it means that the censor now of the Hebrew books is going to be a secular person, not a Galach, not a Catholic priest. That's actually a very interesting and important development in Jewish history because from Torah scholarship because it means the person who's going through the books is going to be coming with a slightly more a, a less anal attitude, a more a more uh, uh, objective attitude towards this. Not entirely, but somewhat. And so when Hasselbauer died, uh, he was replaced by this guy, Tish, who at least was a little more, you know, more middle of the road, shall we say. That's when the Notabihita was published under Tish. And, you know, if you ever look and go online and look at the first page of the Notabihita, the original printing in 1776, I think it was, You'll see it has all the uh, Latin stuff at the bottom from the uh, from the guy at that time. And at least you could get it published. Uh, you know, although you can be sure, let me put it this way. So as a result of what I'm saying, if you were a rabbi in Prague in the 1600s, you learned PDQ to be very diplomatic and careful how you write. You understand? And it is indeed... I would say, an outstanding characteristic of the Chachme Prague, certainly in the second half of the 1700s and first half of the 1800s, the people we'll be dealing with today, that they were always very diplomatic and circumspect. and didn't shoot off their mouth and say anything dumb because you're being watched. Okay, I say that as a praise. You know, they're being watched. And the note of Yudah, for example, and it's Slach even, very careful, if you know how to read it, on what they say and how they say, and always speaking in very liberal terms, that's how life had to be lived. Okay? That is how life had to be lived. Um, Now, as I said, this process of secularization underwent an intensification in the 1780s because when Maria Theresa died, and she was a very firm Catholic, her son Joseph II became the emperor for 10 years, and while he was a firm Catholic, but he was what you would call today modern Orthodox. And and without going to too many details, because this is not a history course, uh, 
One of the things he did was he, they uh, kicked out the Jesuits from the Austrian Empire. This is part of a general trend that happened in the 1700s, that the Jesuits, who looked like they're getting too strong and too controlling, were expelled from Catholic countries. It's shocking. Austria, Bavaria, uh, many places in Italy, Spain and Portugal. It's uh, For certain reasons, this is, it started with the Marquis de Pombal in Portugal. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon. So if the Jesuits are out, then you have regular people to be the censors. What's shot a regular person? Maybe he's an anti-Semite, Stamazite. You know, why not, right? Maybe it's just I'm an anti-Semite. Uh, after all, what kind of guy would have any interest in Hebrew anyway? And you know and I know, because you take a couple of courses in college in Hebrew, is very far from understanding rabbinic literature, let alone simply the Russia Tavis, which the books used to ab abound in. So is this an interesting world that I'm talking about? Now, um, to cut to the chase. So in 1788, a guy took over. He had been in, he had been an apprentice beforehand. Who was a guy from a Czech uh, from Bohemia. Uh, what was it called from Liechtenstein? And uh, you know it's a small town. His name was Charles Fisher, Carl Carlos Fisher, Carl Fisher, and he's not Jewish. He was a, a Catholic. And uh, he had it, and he moved to Prague as a young man, and he just had a natural natia to Ivrit, also to other languages, but to Ivrit, which is just interesting. And he had a natural natia of interest in Jewish literature, including rabbinic literature. Not in a bad way, not in an overly friendly way, but pretty much straight up the middle. <coughs> And he maintained this job for, I mean, a long time. I mean, uh, maybe 50, 60 years. A long time. So just imagine that you are in Prague, where some have been there, some have not been there. He called me yesterday. He's going there, Bornstein, with some uh, trip. Uh, if you go to Prague, one of the things you see is the old Jewish area. One of the things, if you want to, you see the university, which is an old university, not far from the Jewish quarter. And the old Jewish quarter, and the university is a, is a large complex of of offices, as you would imagine, and that was located, and there was located, the apartment and the offices of the censor. So this guy Carlos Fisher uh, lived in Prague for the rest of his life, and it was like I say, he's a guy, and he got married, he had a family. They all lived in that apartment, a nice size apartment that was you know, the 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 perk of that job, and he was employed by the Austrian state. Uh, I'll use American terminology. Not by the federal government, but by the state government, although the federal government is in charge. Uh, so is the Bohemian Chancery. And uh, his job is to, is to be a censor and also a translator of uh, Hebrew. And so he's supposed to be their official expert or anything having to do with Hebrew and, and even Jew stuff. And that's the role he filled for the rest of his life. Now, he was fascinated with Jews. Again, he didn't overly love them, but he didn't hate them either. And that is already a huge madrega. You know, in the land of the blind, the, the one-eyed man is king, as they say. And so this Charles Fisher, Carlos Fisher, Carlos is how you say Charles in Latin. So uh, Carlos Fisher, he served as the, uh, uh, as the censor now, which means if you're Jewish and you live in Prague and you want to publish anything, I mean... A kol kore, a invitation, um, a pashkvil, you know, something you want to put on the wall, a sefer, of course, any kind of sefer. Gemara, halacha, chumash, haskala, haskala. Anything like that, you got to go through this guy. And he's either going to say yes or no, give it the thumb ups or the thumbs down. If he gives it the thumbs down, you ain't publishing it. Get over it. You understand? Now, a guy like him, if he would have been Hasselbauer and the Catholics, they would have just confiscated the manuscript and say, heck with you. This guy got a reputation pretty darn quick of being a very fair guy. And as I said before, not really anti-Semitic. Let me put it this way. George Bernard Shaw said an anti-Semite is one who dislikes Jews more than necessary. So our hero here, Carl Fisher, uh he did not like this dislike Jews more than necessary, only in the necessary amount, you know. And by by that 
by by the standards of Prague in the 18th and 19th century, that was already Hasidium Mazolam. And so it's just very fascinating that a person who for decade after decade was the guy you had to deal with found himself having more and more to do because he wasn't a censor in some stupid little town where there's a few Jews where they had, you know, uh, uh, printing presses, but he's in Prague. Like, the, you know, uh, that's the B'nai Brock or the or the Lakewood of, of that time. It's one of them anyway. No question about it. And they had some major Talmudian Chacham over there. You know, I think you know that. I'll call him the Chachme Prague. And he got to know each and every one of them, and they had to know him, because if you want to get anything published, you got to run it by him. And meanwhile, because he was an intelligent fellow, he wasn't no super intellectual, but he was no dumbbell at all. Uh, he was, he was a, 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 an educated, normal guy. So he actually uh, established friendships. This is, what I'm saying now is, is fairly unique. He established personal relations and friendships with a lot of the Gedolim from Prague. Now, he came there in 1788 when the note of him was an old man, almost over the hill. Not quite, but almost. The note of him had died in bad health in 1793. But, um, so he came there five years early. So he had to pass on the Tzlach, for example, and things like that. And he, let me put it this way. So his house, his office, remember he lived in the, his apartment was in the in the university complex. So in other words, if you're Jewish and you're a rabbi, you want to get a book published or anything like that at all, you know, you want to get a Kol Kori published, you got to go to him. And he might look it over and he would say, what does Ayan Pei mean? He says, I'll pee, you know, or Alpha I'll pee, or, you know, the, the Russia Tavis. Or you're using a, a language here, it's very funny. Rabbinic Hebrew, I think you know this, does not conform to diktuk. Uh, not really. So, I, I learned in, when I was in college, I learned the uh, Radak book on diktuk, and this is different, you know. And he had to learn pretty quick that this is how we Jews do it. And he got, so, so my point is, he established human relationships, fr- friendships, uh, with a lot of the Gedolim in Prague, like I said before, the Nehru Behuda was pretty much health-wise over the hill, but his successor um, was uh, the Tshuva Me'ava. Now, I have to be careful about this. The Tshuva Me'ava, a lot of their who I spoke about, was, I, I, I did a podcast on him, was not um, the chief rabbi of Prague. When the Nehru Behuda was around in 1754, see, he was elected to be the chief rabbi of Prague, and I believe even the chief rabbi of Bohemia. These are different salaries, and these are very important roles, and you have a lot of responsibilities vis-a-vis the government, not only vis-a-vis the Jews. When the Nehru Behuda died, so the government, the Austrian government, which ran everything, was not interested, and maybe even the Jewish community, was not interested in having such a powerful rabbinic figure, uh, and therefore they would not allow the election of another chief rabbi of Prague. Instead, they said like this, you have an autonomous coercive community, you have a Cahill of the old, which means you have your own court system. Okay, you know, we'll allow that, even though we shouldn't, but we'll allow that. But then, to run that, all you need is Dionim. And so, uh, they call them jurists and jurists, which is Dionim. And all you need, so, you don't need a Rav, all you need is an Av Basin, so to speak, that is to say, a president of the Supreme Court. Chief Justice, that's a good way to put it. In America, we say Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So there's a based in in Prague, and um, there's a Chief Justice, and the others are just justices. Uh, now, the Jews tried to, ch- some of the Jews tried to, to, to change that. They never did allow another Chief Rabbi in Prague until Shia Rappaport back in there, and, and even that after a long, difficult time. So the period I'm talking about, the Austrian government, the government in Prague, whether they let, whether it was right or wrong, would not allow a uh, chief rabbi, all, you know, in other words, a real successor in Nebuchadnezzar. All they would allow is, is Av Basin, chief justice of the Supreme Court. So when the Nebuchadnezzar died, uh, there were big fights, and uh, not pretty ones, um, over who should be the chief justice, uh, the Av Basin. And it was a constant struggle for, ooh, 40 years? No, 30-some years. 
30 some years, who should get the number one job and who should just be Stama Justice. And the big, and the big ugly fights, which you can immediately understand if you know anything about a Jewish community. I don't know where you live, but I mean, I see this instantly. Was the, uh, the Tshuva Miyava, who you might say was a Talmud Mubik of the Nerd of Yehuda. I can't say the Talmud Mubik because the guy was a Rosh Hashiva for five decades, Nerd of Yehuda. And he had many hundreds, at least a thousand students over the time. But if you're talking about the late 1700s when the Nudabihuda was an old man and the question who should succeed him, so the Talmud Mubik at that time, who was located in Prague, would be Rebeleza Flecalis. On the other hand, the Nudabihuda had a son, Shmuel Landau, that she was seeing. I did him once. And he wanted the job because it was my father, was the rabbi beforehand. And they couldn't settle it. And so it was a constant fighting. And uh, the Shuvamiyava got the chief justice job. And Shmulando got just, he was just a justice, you understand? And, uh, and, it, was, and it was a lot of tension and, uh, over the years. Uh, and that's how it went, you know? That's one of the reasons, not the only reason, that, oops, once that's, it's one of the reasons, I'm sorry to say, that Prague went down to tubes. That's not the only reason. And... I don't want to oversimplify, but the fact that the Gedolim in Prague were always fighting each other, you know, uh, you know, w- w- was not an edifying uh, spectacle, let's put it that way. Uh, and if Shmuelanda was rich and, and Fleckers was poor, and here, <laughs> this guy, Carlos Fisher, listen to how he, he describes it. He's writing to the Austrian government to tell him what was Tutsa in the Jewish community. The first, di- this is what he says, quote, the first die-in, Rabbi Fleckless is a widely respected scholar, a prudent and renowned man, and a skillful preacher. His colleague, the second jurist, Samuel Landau, is his adversary and opponent in everything. Samuel Landau has the rabble on his side, while the other one is backed by the scholars and the notables. Fire and water, wind and earth, are more likely to be in harmony together than these two. In other words, <laughs> the hell will freeze over, as we'd say, before these two get along. Nothing is known about the third one except these ignoramus as useful as the fifth wheel, and so on and so forth. So, if you know who Carol Fisher was, you get a lot of lush and horror about what's going on in the Jewish community in Prague at that time. Now, he became, over the course of the... So, so imagine a guy whose house is always full of Jews. Because this guy wants to publish a safer, and that guy wants to, you know, get a, like I say, a Pashkril approved, and another guy wants to get... Um, here's a good one. The Austrian government started regulating the tombstone inscriptions because, you know, uh, what's to stop somebody? This happens today from saying, here lies our father, who was a Goan Adir and a Godel Ador and this and that and the other. First of all, the guy was no Goan. Second of all, he was not Mars Derisa. Third of all, he was a bum and a lousy person. But you go to read on the tombstone, it'll come out, you know, it's there. Or better yet, uh, maybe they'll put in the Shop Type 3 stuff because Prague was the headquarters of the Frankists. Okay, uh, it was a headquarters of many Frankists. So they'll put on the tombstone of their father who died, something where you've decoded it's long live Frank or Shabtai Sweet. You get it? So they even had to regulate the tombstones. It was a, it was, it was quite a, a, an era. Okay, so, um, so this Carolus Fisher, over the course of time, became I would say almost best friends, almost, with some of the uh, biggest uh, rabbis in Prague. Because they, 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 they be, once you meet somebody all the time, you talk about Jewish stuff, and then you talk about non-Jewish stuff, and after a while, if you're a noble person, I mean, you'll form a friendship. And it's very, very interesting, because there's, there's a lot of uh, Hebrew writing between the two sides. And you can be sure that Carlos Fisher used his uh, contacts with these Gedolim, really, to become probably the most learned guy anywhere in his time. Because I'm describing something that didn't happen elsewhere. Uh, so as Goyish censors went, he was the best. That's the way the Jews saw it. And he became a close friend with, um, this is just interesting on a human level, with uh, the Chu Miavo, the uh, Bersal Ronsberg, and uh, the Tom Hamel and, and Bar Yetelis. 
These are three. I've done all three. And these are three of the big Chachme Prague. And uh, they used to uh, send each other, you know, he would send him a Rosh Hashanah card. He would send him a Christmas card. It's, it's unbelievable. And he would send him a, uh, the Ronsberg sent him an Esrug on Sukkot. I don't know why. And uh, I think uh, Fleckless had him over for Purim Suda. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, he sent him Shalach He sent the guy Shalach It's Now, first of all, a lot, some of it is political. That is a fact. You had to kiss, you simply had no choice. You had to kiss up to these people because they're the ones who hold the keys to whether you can publish anything. That is true. But if you read about it, so there's a professor in Prague, I don't know her, Sermonova or something like that. Sermonova. Sermonova. Uh, in, uh, in, in Prague today, today, there's a magazine very scholarly magazine that's been coming out since the 60s, I believe, even under the communists, called Judaica, uh, Judaica Bohemia, Judaica Bohemia, which in Latin means Bohemian Jewry. And uh, it's very scholarly, very dry kind of uh, journal. It comes out once a year, twice a year, something like that. And I don't know, maybe it's online even. It must, by now it must be. And... Um, over the years, they usually concentrated. They weren't very learned, you know. Concentrated on on realia, you know, physical things, archaeology, whatever. But since communism fell down, so you have some heavy hitters over there, and they published very, very interesting um, material on the Jews in Bohemia, Moravia, in the Czech lands, and uh, they can read Czech. Of course, they are Czech. And they can read German. So in other words, they, they're doing archival work that most people are not aware of that even exists. So when I'm talking about Carl Fisher and the, and the, the Chuv Meyava and people like that, uh, it's, it's all now in, in, in the archives. Because remember, the Austrian government was a micromanager. They loved this stuff. They loved red tape. They loved lots of paper. That's who they were. And uh, it's a little weird, but, you know, that, that's who they were. So for a historian, it's like a gold mine because they'll tell you if the guy ever picked his nose. I mean, you know, they, they come down in crazy amount of detail in uh, because it was a highly regulated and extremely bureaucratic society, and that's how they liked it. So Carlos Fisher, uh, you know, has a lot of information about him and, and, and what he says and the books he approved of, the books he didn't approve of, and so forth. Now, he was a nice guy. Therefore, whereas the Jesuits would say, we're confiscating this because you can't uh, print it, he would tell the Machaber, look, you have a couple lines over here. Take it back and fix it up. And then submit it to me. And that might happen two or three times till the guy finally agreed and then they worked out something. You, you understand what I'm saying? Within the system, he was a good guy. Okay, within the system. <clears throat> now, he was there... Um, as I say, it was a point in 1788 at the end of the reign of Joseph II, who died in 1790. So he was there primarily. Uh, there was Leopold who was there for two years, and there was Franz the the first, uh, Holy Roman Emperor Franz II, the Austrian Emperor Franz I, who was there from 1792 to 1835. That was the main years of this bureaucratic, uh, absolutist state. This micromanaging period—that that was a tukufa—and afterwards, under his successor, uh, Ferdinand, who was really a, a continuation of France, because Ferdinand was an imbecile. I mean, that literally, he was run by the Council of State. So this flourished at a time of extreme bureaucratism. Now, here, here we go. What are they offering here in in um, in the Gnosim catalog? Here's one piece of this. Okay, here's one piece of this, and that is. Uh, for per, for bureaucratic purposes, what happens when a Jew has a court case involving a guy and they go to an Austrian court? So you have to, you know, swear and take evidence, right? That's how a trial works. Now, a guy, a Catholic, he's going to swear in the New Testament. What's a Jew going to swear on? It's always was famous that in Geisha countries, down the centuries, they always said the Jews are liars. And even if they swear in something, it doesn't mean they think of the big liars. The only way around this 
was to say if you make a Jew swear in some unusual, scary way that it, that it, that it might freak them out if they lie. So how do you do that? So the kita schefetz, you put a Jew in, in a in a he should he should uh, be testifying in court. They should bring in a coffin and the Jew should lie down in the coffin. So you should think about yomamisa, or the Jew should swear a gigantic. Uh, Latin Mishapara. If I lie, may I burn in hell forever? May I, may I both pop, pop out? I, you know, all kind of terrible, terrible curses. Uh, Ulai, maybe that will persuade the Jew to to um, to tell the truth. You understand? Well, on the other hand, they knew. They said the Jews are very slippery and, and sneaky, and any possible loophole they'll use. So. Let's say, for argument's sake, I'm just making this up. If I'm Jewish, I'm brought into the Austrian court, anywhere in the Austrian Empire, and they make me swear to give testimony. So, uh, you know, like in English, they say you cross your fingers or something like that. So if the Jew can find any kind of loophole, then maybe he'll lie, and he won't be worried about the fact he just took an oath. I'm talking about the way the Goyim saw it, okay? I'm, I'm talking about it from the Goyim's point of view. There's a lot of literature, and this is famous stuff. So what do you do with the problem that sometimes you have a case between a Jew and a guy and you can't trust the word of the Jew? You get it? Or the, or the court is more predisposed to think that you can't trust the word of the Jew. Uh, so one of the issues was as follows. Here I'm going to the Gnosis catalog. Suppose I'm Jewish and they bring me into a Geisha court and they swear in the Bible. Well, the Bible is the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I'm talking about from the point of view of the Gaisha mentality. Of course the Jew's going to lie. He doesn't view that as a real Bible. You get it? You know, a regular Gideon Bible from the Gaim is garnished to him. Right? Uh, what if the Jew says like this? Uh, this is not a real Bible. Uh, it's missing some letters, some words, or something like that. After all, uh, think of the following. Suppose a missionary gives me a Bible, the Old Testament, in Hebrew, a missionary. It's it's regular Hebrew. Yeah, but I'm going to say like this. It's the Sefer Torah, Shekoso, Min. Hell with it. So I don't have to feel bound by that. You get it? What if they, they heard over the centuries that the Sefer Torah is missing letters that doesn't count. So you might say, even if you bring a Sefer Torah... And the Jews should mamish hold a Sefer Torah. And there were times that they did all this different stuff in the Gaisha courts. Bring in a Sefer Torah for the Jew to hold when he swears. Uh, but then they say like this. Yeah, but maybe it's a puzzle Sefer Torah. You understand? A lot of Sefer Torahs have psulim in them. And therefore the guy was free to lie because he didn't feel bound by the fact they had Sefer Torah. You, you get what I'm saying. And so how do you deal with this in a bureaucratic absolutist state? In a micromanaging, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, absolutist state. So, one of the things they do is say like this. Uh, we'll get a... One way to solve it is what they have in Gnosis. We'll get a, um, a a bunch of reliable Jews to publish a real Chumash. Um, that means it'll be uh, with Hagos. That is to say, somebody will go and be Magid the printed Chumash to make sure that it has all the words and letters and trop and everything that he's supposed to have. And once we have that, then we can print it and make copies. And then every court in the Austrian Empire will get a copy. And whenever a Jew comes in that have a case between a Jew and a guy and he has to swear, this is the official copy that they'll use. And that way the Jew will know that this really counts. And he better not lie, otherwise God will, God will punish him. That's that's the idea. But how, how do you know? And so our hero today, Carl Fisher, was commissioned to put together such a chumash, uh, which was actually printed in Vienna. Um, and he, so, so it's a, it's, it's a, if you look on the Genosim, you know, it's a, it's a chumash with Rashi and the Uncleus and all that sort of thing. And it's been mugah, you know, it's been looked over to make sure it's 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 accurate. And it's the real chumash. Now, they weren't sure, because they heard all kind of rumors. What is the uh, 
book that the Jews really venerate. Uh, it's kind of famous in the Christian world that I'm talking about the way they say it. That the Jews don't hold from the Bible so much they hold from the Talmud. After all, if the Bible says one thing and the Talmud says another, they follow the Talmud. So maybe they should make the guy swear holding a Gemara. But then they heard from the Shabtai Tzvi and other guys that the holiest book is the Zohar. So there is included in the Chubas, uh, um, I'm sorry, Chubmeava from Blazer Flecklis, a famous Chubas often quoted. And uh, I'll read it to you in the English Precy because I have it in my famous, my favorite heretic book here, the Theology and Responsa. This is a, it's a paragraph. Um, it's a famous chuba, by the way. You, you just listen to this. This is number 26, chuba number 26 from Prague in 1806. is addressed to Carolus Fisher, 1755-1844, the Christian Hebraist, librarian of Prague University, and the government-appointed censor of Hebrew books. The query is with regard to a Jew's oath when given to a Gentile. Is it as binding as when he gives the oath to another Jew? And if not, should the Jew take an oath to a Gentile while lying in a coffin dressed in tachrichim? It's even been suggested the Jew should swear with a copy of the Zohar in his hand, since the Zohar, as the Hasidim say, is such a holy book that whoever touches it while telling a lie will die within a few days. In other words, Fisher doesn't believe in the Zohar, but he said the Jews do, and the Shittosam, that's a way to make people... They're superstitious about lying, holding a Zohar in their hands. This is what Fisher is saying, to asking Flecklis. So maybe you should make every Jew uh, swear holding a Zohar. Flecklis replies, first, that there is no difference whatsoever between the binding power of an oath to a Gentile and an oath to a Jew. Well, duh, what do you think he's going to say? To break either is to offend against taking God's name in vain. The world would totter unless men could rely on one another when an oath is taken. We find that the great biblical heroes took oaths even to Ovdei Avodazar, which they then clearly considered to be binding. Now, in Jewish law, an oath is binding in itself, and there's no need whatsoever for a Jew to hold a Bible in his hand when taking one. It is most inadvisable to adopt any special procedure when a Jew takes an oath to a Gentile, because this would defeat the purpose by suggesting to the Jew, which is not true, that his oath to a Gentile is not binding. This is the argument of the Chu of Meava. To use the Zohar for the purpose can only invite ridicule. If a person suspected of defying God's law by swearing falsely, is it likely he will be deterred by swearing on a purely human work like the Zohar? This gives Flecalus an opportunity of stating his opinion of the Zohar. This work is mentioned neither in the Mishnah nor in the Talmud and was entirely unknown before Moses of Leon suddenly produced at the end of the 13th century. It could not have possibly been written, as the Kabbalists claim, Bashem ben Yochai, since it mentions people who lived after him, centuries after him. We know that the Sabbateans and the Frankists relied on the Zohar for their perverse views, but if such a great saint as Shem ben Yochai had been the author, God would not surely would not allow his work to become the cause of so much religious anarchy. That's a famous controversial uh, thing from the, from the Chub Meava, in the Sefer Chub Meava, to Carl Fisher, right? To this, to this guy, uh, and so uh, they made money with this. I mean, you know, they got the the book published, and then uh, they uh, they got a letter from the chief rabbi Prague or the chief justice. Let's put it that way. And uh, uh, what do you call it? And the idea is to make a copy of this with the copy of the of the uh, letter of the chief rabbi of Prague. And then they send these out to all the courts, the Gaisha courts. And that way, when a Jew was called in, let's say, for example, in Hungary, uh, to, to swear in, in a case, put your right hand on this Bible. Look, it's the real thing. The, uh, the Chub Meava says he looked it over and it's a real Chumash. And uh, therefore, if you lie, you're, 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 you're offending God. Now, really, as I said before, the whole idea of holding a safer doesn't count. Not really. But, you know, that's beyond the European mentality. <laughs> they had to hold your hand in a holy book. So, uh, there's a, one of these copies, okay, is for sale in the Gnosis, uh, uh Library uh, catalog. Lot number 23. Uh, one of these copies, as he puts it over here, uh, 
attached to the Chumash is a document with the signature of Blazer Fleckelis in German, in which he confirms the book's authenticity to be used in a court, and he's called the chief rabbi and legalist of the Jews in Prague. Not legalist, jurist. And jurist means a, a chief justice. Rabbiner from the Yiddish Gemeinde. Uh, so it's, it's, it's real artifact. These kind of things were used for a long time until eventually, you know, they liberalized the laws later under Franz Josef. But for a long time, this is how it went. And by the way, this caused... Uh, so so let, me, let me say this. I, I forget exactly how it goes, but Professor Semenova has all the uh, dirt there. They, they, they got like a little bit of money for each, each copy that was sold. You know what I'm saying? In other words, they made some money on this. Not a lot. Not a lot. And uh, it's nice to know when you read this that he will say, oh, right, Fleckless is an honest man. In other words, you have a geish attestation to these people were. It's funny to me that when you look at the original Chuvmiavo, which he, which he uh, passed, you know, Relezo Fleckless. So it's spelled Chubo, M-A-I-B-O-H, Maibo, Chuba Miaibo. So you can tell the accent. They didn't say Miaibo, but they said Miaibo, Chuba Miaibo, because he's, he's literally, um, what do you call it, you know, transliterating the way the, the Jews called it. So imagine a funny guy. Uh, they, they, they exchanged visits. In other words, he would visit him all the time. He'd visit all the time. Rebeleza Fleckless writes, how's your wife? I'm serious. And, you know, how's this? And he writes back. And they became uh, friends. Now, this guy didn't become, I would say, you know, uh, a goo-goo-gaga Jew lover, that sort of thing. But by the standards of the Austrian Empire, he was. Okay? Now, just to be not that way, uh, he'd be there. And it's also very interesting, like I said before, him and the Ronsberg, because uh, I'll just tell you one story. I think it's being offered here. You know what I say? You, you almost have a mini Justiniani story like I did the other day uh, in the 1830s, I believe it was. Now, the Chubmiyava died in the in um, 1820s. But uh, the Nota Yehuda had a son who lived in Prague and then a grandson, and they were big masculine. Now, they were Shomer Shabbos, but they were definitely on the left wing. They were not at all like the Nebi Huda. They were leaders of the Prague Haskalah. His son Yisrael and then and his son uh, Moshe, I think, Landau. In other words, the Landau family started out with the Nebi Huda, and one of his sons was just like the Nebi Huda, Shmuel Landau, who was a was a Dayan. Uh, for, from 1793 to, let's say, 1826, I think. So the Chuv Miyava was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, of the Basin, and Shmulanda was the justice of the Basin, and hated that fact. When the Chumayava died, so then he moved up, uh, Shmulanda, and for and he lived for another seven years or so. Those last seven years, he was the chief justice of the uh, Supreme Court, so to speak, of the Basin of Prague. But nobody was the Rolf, you understand, the 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 the, the, the chief rabbi of the country of the uh, community. And this is a time when the Haskalah was really very big. The question, of course, is the Haskalah is a very wide term. It goes from the extreme right to the extreme left. I would not put the note of Yehuda's children and grandchildren on the extreme right. I put them on the middle. Not on the left. On the left, you had some people, their mom shot, but of course, and this, now you really did. Peter Bear and these other schmoes, you definitely did. And our hero, Carl Fisher, knew them all. So it must have been very interesting for him to have a bird's-eye view of the Jewish community. He was very friendly with the left-wingers, naturally. His his thought, he was a Joseph II type of guy, that if you treat the Jews better, sooner or later the Jews will, will lighten up and they'll assimilate more. In his lifetime, it didn't happen quickly enough for him. After he died, he died in the 1840s, then Yiddishkeit collapsed big time in Prague. And Mamish collapsed. But that's a separate schmooze. Um, so he lived in interesting times, and basically, he writes a lot of times, he said, listen, if the all-Jewish community was people like uh, Fleckles or something like that, all right. But they're not. They're fanatics. They're people to the right of it. It's, it's a very interesting way he writes. So in the 1830s, 
there was a, they're going to publish a new shas. The guy who's supposed to be to have the the best government permission was a guy in Vienna, Anton Schmidt, who used to uh, who the Austrian government gave the like monopoly that he should publish um, Sidurim, Machzarim, Chamashim, all the Jewish stuff, Sfarim. Uh, but the grandson of the Nodav Yudosh, uh, Moshe Landau, he, in the 1830s, wanted to publish a Shas. Uh, you know, for good reasons. And and also as a business deal. It's a business thing. Because Moshe Landau at that time had his own printing press. And, you know, you can make money in those days of this stuff. And uh, so, Anton, so there was like a, a, a smaller version, right? A smaller version of um, the Justiniani Bragandini fight in Venice, um, uh, not quite as bitter, but still bitter, because uh, we're talking about the 1800s now, and uh, what do you call it? The guy um, Anton Schmidt, who's very famous actually, in Vienna, he said, "I guess I'm going to publish the shots and knock out, and I'll conquer the market, knock out the others," because he got a hold of the Biuria Gro. <laughs> right to put in the back the, the comments the, the, the Gemara is going to include the Bira Gro on it um, and Vilna Gon was already famous by 1830s and so the people will, that's the one that's the shots people will buy uh, so what happened to the Prague people you know they're, 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 now they're screwed so Carl Fisher said like this I would recommend you should put in Ronsberg, because <laughs> he was a very good friend of mine. And Ronsberg died, I forget exactly when, in the 1820s, at the age of 60. He wasn't old. And he, we even know, uh, Carl Fisher writes about how he died, you know. He got a stroke or something like that. I don't remember exactly. If you read the Sermon Nova article, she has all the uh, details. Uh, and he was very close with the Ronsberg. And he said like this, this guy was a Talmud Chacham. That's what he, said. he calls him Daniel Rosenbaum. Apparently they had a Jewish name and a Geisha name, so the Geisha name would be the Jewish name would be Saul Ronsberg, because Ronsberg is the name of a town in Bohemia, but his Geisha name was Daniel Rosenbaum, and uh, he says, "Oh, you know, uh, if you, if you, Rosenbaum was a big Talmud Chacham and a big Mafapel, so if you put in has a ghost, which are kind of, um, uh, yeah, here I found it. Look at this in 1820. It's when Ronsberg dies. And this is what this guy writes in his diary. Rabbi Basal Ronsberg, known as Daniel Joel Rosenbaum, who is unforgettable to me, died around 10 o'clock at night at the age of 60. His belly was very bloated, which is why I was buried in the cemetery already this afternoon at about 5 o'clock. I saw a whole bunch of Jews um, there, and during the funeral oration of Rabbi Glogau, now known as Marcus Schlesinger, I heard continual crying and sobbing. He was uh, Rosenbaum, or Ronsberg, was endowed with many virtues, including noble-mindedness, sincerity, and humanity, which is why he was buried rightfully with the reputation of a completely honest man. I often made use of his advice, as I was convinced long ago that he provided the most correct and most certain explanations in indecisive manners. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's that's a uh, that's a geisha testimony who Ronsberg was. Okay. Uh, who the Ronsberg was. So he said, the other guy's publishing with the Hagos of the Gros, you publish it with the Hagos of the Bitsal Ronsberg. That's how it got into the Gemara. Right? Mara Ronsberg. Uh, so, it's I won't exactly say it's like Justiniani and the other thing, you know, but, uh, and they weren't going around burning them, but there was still censorship uh, that late in the 1800s because the Austrian government believed, uh, especially in the period, I'm talking about in the first half of the 1800s, in very micromanaging control. And so they're very into censorship. Anyway, uh, time's running out here, so I'll just call attention once again. If you want this very interesting piece of Jewish history in which you had to have, um, it, it's it's like a spitz of the bureaucratic state. You want uh, a godol to sign Haskama that the Chumash is accurate and mugah so that Jews, according to the Geisha mentality, will believe that it contains a sanctity, this Chumash, and when they swear in court, uh, they'll be telling the truth. 
And he won't be able to say, well, I knew it was missing some pages, therefore it was defective, and therefore I could lie. Uh, it's a, a slice of Jewish history in the past. And again, it's lot number 23. And if this is something, I would get something it was as, as a historical curiosity. There's a whole letter in German uh, explaining exactly what I just told you, which is appended, which comes together with this. But uh, my time is Mama Shabbos. So with that, I wish you a uh, good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.